I'm not gonna debate you, Jerry. I'm not gonna sit here and debate. Hello and welcome, regular podcast. I appreciate you tuning in. My name is Daniel Fritch. I am your host. What is the Red Glare Podcast? Well, it is a Houston Rockets podcast. It is a Houston Texans podcast. It's both things at the same time. Can you believe it? Today, it's going to be an Astros podcast as well. We are entering uncharted territories, folks. We have Roosh Williams on the show today. One of my favorite Houston sports internet personalities was good enough to join me. And we got into it, man. We got into Rockets. We got into Texans. We got into Astros. Uh, thrilled to have Roosh on the show. Um, I'm going to get right to that conversation. There's some there's some stuff going on in Houston sports right now. Brandon Cooks, it looks like he may be on his way out of town, but we haven't made that trade yet, so I'm not going to bore you with my speculation about my, you know, what, what may happen, but my sense is that we're going to trade him. We're probably going to get something like a third-round pick back for him, and we just extended him. We just extended him. So that's going to be $16-plus million of dead cap money on next year's salary cap. I don't know if you guys know this, but $16 million is a lot of money. You can sign a pretty good player for $16 million. Um, Two of them. Three of them, depending on the position. Uh, So yeah, we won't have that $16 million. We won't have Brandon Cooks, but we'll see. You can tell already what my opinion of it is is on the Rockets front, they looked really bad against Utah, losing in Utah last night. And they didn't look good beating Utah a couple nights before. So we get into that, Roosh and I, in the conversation. There'll be more more to come on Rockets ineptitude, I'm sure, as we uh, roll through the season. So last thing before I get to my conversation with Roosh, please, please hit me up on Twitter, redglarepod.com, DM me, you disagree, with anything that I've said, you have any feedback, I love to argue. I love to debate. It's one of my wife's favorite things is just how I will debate every little thing. It's not exhausting for her at all. So just reach out. I also want to do a advice portion of the show. And so if you need advice, whether it's serious or not, shoot that to me in the DMs on Twitter. I would appreciate it. I'm going to I'm gonna try to do that. And I, that could be any kind of advice. Career advice, relationship advice, fantasy, gambling advice, whatever you got. I love to give advice, and I would love to incorporate that here on the show. And I can do that anonymously if you don't want your name thrown out there. Um, so redglarepod.com, redglarepod on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, even though I don't have a ton of content there. Um, you can find me. I'm super easy to find. I appreciate you tuning in. Tell a friend and enjoy my conversation with Roosh Williams. So I am joined now by Roosh Williams, who was one of the very first people I reached out to when I started this podcast, because I know him to be one of the most thoughtful sort of Houston sports scions. And it says a lot about Roosh that he was one of the very first people that got back to me and was and was open to the idea of coming on the show, even when I didn't have a show yet, right? I didn't have a Twitter following at all. I had nothing. And so that says a lot about him. And I really appreciate him joining me. So, Roosh, before I get to my first question, if anyone listening or watching this is not familiar with your work, where's the best place to find you on the Internet? Yeah. And thanks for thanks for reaching out and having me on, Daniel. I appreciate it. Um, I think the best way to find my stuff, man, just go to Twitter 
That's really all I use. I don't, I don't use Instagram or Facebook or anything. Go to Twitter. It's Roosh, R-O-O-S-H, Williams. Roosh rhymes with swoosh, just use an R. R-O-O-S-H, Williams. And then um, I do a Rockets podcast called State of the Rockets. So if you're into that, check that out. I also, I haven't done it in a while, but I do a podcast for Ball is Life called The Noble and Roosh Show. It's more of a general NBA podcast. Sometimes we interview NBA players. Sometimes we interview beat writers for different teams, things like that. So I have an NBA podcast, and then um, which you can get anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple, whatever. And then I have a Rockets podcast, so you can get on YouTube. You can also get anywhere you listen to podcasts, but on YouTube as well, we do a video. So, so yeah, check that out. So I started this podcast, and it is a Rockets and Texans podcast. They're my two favorite teams. I love the Astros, but I, I don't follow baseball closely enough that I felt I could speak intelligently to it. But it struck me that both teams were in a similar spot, just off the top of my head. They both recently parted ways with their recognizable sort of franchise icons and J.J. Watt and James Harden and DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun Watson, if you want to put them in that category. Both teams have new first-time GMs. Both teams have apparently patient ownership, which is going to allow them to see through a proper rebuild. Both teams are projected to have a significant amount of cap room in the upcoming offseason. Both teams have some question marks at head coach. Both teams selected third in their respective drafts this past year. Both teams have questions at their signal caller position, right? Is Davis Mills a starter? Is Kevin Porter Jr. a point guard? Both teams have one win and four losses. Last year, both teams had a winning percentage of 24%. So I ask you this, Roosh, which team is better positioned in your mind moving forward to, to get back to relevance, to get back to that contender status? That's a good question. Um, I didn't realize there were that many like very specific parallels. I knew there were some broad parallels. I didn't know it got like that specific third pick one in four record, 24% win, win percentage. That's interesting. Um, you know, I, so I'm mostly rockets Astros. Okay. I, I have detached from the Texans emotionally because who, if you haven't at this point, then I respect you because <laughs> they put us through a lot. Um, it's a masochist. It's, it's, it's weird, yeah, right? It's weird because the Texans, I don't understand what the Texans are doing. I don't necessarily think that they're like off base or whatever. I just legitimately don't understand. Like, like I, I would consider myself a Rockets expert. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the Texans are, are maneuvering, right? Like they just let, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Kamier Grugier Hill. Uh, right. Right. Like I thought he was their best linebacker and their linebackers aren't good, but they let him go. They seem to make like these, these kind of moves that that make you look back at well could you not extract any type of asset or anything from that and you just had to like cut bait so i don't know i like what they did in the draft i'm still i'm still unsure about stingley versus sauce gardner Mm -hmm. i'm not a talent evaluator we'll see i hope they got the pick right i like some of the later picks you know hopefully christian harris can be a contributor hopefully john mechie gets uh healthy and can be a contributor you know i think we're seeing jalen petrie and damian pierce immediately contribute Right. But, um, you know, football, I think, is an easier sport to immediately bounce back in, because if you just get that that superstar quarterback talent in the draft as on a rookie deal, you can build around them, you know, and you can expend your resources to build around them. So in theory, I think it's a little bit easier to kind of get that going on the fly, especially with all the draft capital you have. Um, But at the same time in the NBA, if you get, you know, if you draft one LeBron James, then like, cool, you're you're on the way back. So it's tough. I'm high on the Rockets future. But basketball is so traditionally dominated by, you know, the same stars for stretches of time. So it's like, will the Rockets get out of 
being the worst team in the league to being like middle of the pack? Maybe. Will they get back to a legitimate contender status? I don't know. That's that's hard to predict. Whereas I could see the Texans maybe over the course of three years, like getting things on track, going 10 and six, or I guess now 10 and seven or 11 and six, or, right. you know, being like a decent team that can maybe win the wild card and then get, you know, kind of get into the second round. I feel like that's a little more, I could, I could see that happening maybe quicker than the Rockets, but also conversely, I could see the Rockets talent hitting and then, you know, they're, or they're one trade away because they have the draft capital and they go get a big fish or something like that. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're back. So I think it's a coin flip, honestly. Okay. Maybe I'm, I'm kind of with you. That's why I asked you. I didn't want to ask you. I wanted to go a little bit less prosaic with the questions. I know you talk Rockets all day, and a lot of the people listening to this will have heard you talk about the Rockets. Um, so I wanted to go a little bit off base, you know, with the questions a little bit. Um, so on that, on that same note, I know that Nick Casario, general manager for the Texans, is the decision maker, I think, He's been given sort of free reign to make decisions, and Cal McNair, the owner, probably rubber stamps those decisions that Casario wants to make. When I think about the Rockets front office, you have Rafael Stone, who was general counsel, and then he was promoted to general manager. Um, but I'm not sure. Do you have a sense, a better sense of who's actually making the decisions? If if somebody calls with a trade offer to the Rockets, is it a consortium of cas casino people and seafood people and Rafael Stone's in the room and like, how are those decisions made? Do you know? Are you getting at the Fertitas? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so my understanding is that, um, you know, my understanding is that Tillman Fertitta is pretty hands off, believe it or not. Um, he's not on like a day-to-day -day ops kind of thing with the Rockets. I, my understanding is that he has his people hired and he's trusting in his people. So Rafael makes decisions. Um, they have Eli Whitus, who was held over from the previous regime with with Maury and all them. So my understanding is that, I mean, it's Rafael and Eli and the other the other folks that they have in the building. You know, the Rockets have kind of um, a varied approach. They have some analytics for sure. They're, they're analytics driven for sure. And then they also have, you know, Rafael making making decisions as well, sometimes in lockstep, sometimes maybe not. I'm not sure. But but Tillman is not involved that they. As far as I can see, Tillman has bought into Rafael's plan for, for rebuilding and okay. that's what they're trying to do. So. And, and that's the most you can ask, right? Cause it, it seemed like when he bought the team, I had a lot of misgivings, right? Right. With his personality and sort of his, his past, like he's going to be very involved and it was a little bit scary, but he's proven to be hands off in a good way. And, and I'm optimistic there. Um, so I will hew a little bit more to rockets questions since you are more of a rocket centric guy Here's the toughest one I could come up with. Jalen Green and Jabari Smith Jr. come to blows in the locker room, hypothetically, right? Um, they have irreconcilable differences. One of them has slept with the other significant other. Something horrible has happened. One of them has to be moved. And the consortium of casino and seafood people reach out to you in your DMs and say, hey, what do you think we should do? Who should we hang on to here? How are you responding to that DM? Well... Well, first and foremost, it's very early on Jabari Smith. So I, I got to, it, it, I've gotten to see a year of Jalen and I've only gotten to see like four or five games with Jabari, right? Right. I think Jalen, as currently constructed, has the higher offensive ceiling, right? I mean, I think he's super polished. The skill set's there. He can do every move in the book. He can shoot. He can dunk. He needs to get better at finishing at the rim. He needs to get better at, you know, using 
drawing contact and finishing through contact at the rim. Hopefully he'll get there, but everything else in his game is polished. Jabari, on the other hand, is not as polished, but his three-point shooting is excellent, and his defensive presence is very real, and he's six foot eleven, right? You can't teach height. So those are the two things you're balancing. Jalen has a higher offensive ceiling and, and more potential offensively. I mean, I can see the kid averaging 25-plus a night legitimately. I don't think Jabari ever will average 25 a night. Um, how much do you trade that off with the defensive presence and the fact that Jabari is 6'11 and could really grow into, like, you know, a, a legit, like, 6'11", 240 you know, force that can also shoot and score. So it really depends on what you build around them. Um, I think Jalen, I think Jalen's the sexier piece, mm-hmm. but I do think it to some degree, you know, winning games, maybe, maybe there's an argument for Jabari. I mean, I think, I think Jabari's already kind of come in and given the defense somewhat of they're not, you know, fully grown up, but they're starting to kind of trend up a little bit. So I don't know. I mean, it depends on how I'd view building the team. It's hard to go out and get a Jalen green. Um, they don't just grow on trees, at least good ones, you know, guys right. that with that skill set grow on trees maybe, but the elite that, that put up the elite types of numbers don't necessarily, but you could say the same for Jabari Smith. So at this moment, I'd probably go Jalen green, but I really like the two of them as two core building blocks. I'm with together. you. I'm with you. Shifting to Shingu, you get a call from once again, general manager Roosh gets a call from a fringe playoff team, whoever that is. Let's say that's Portland or Denver or whoever you want to say is on the fringe. And they offer you this year's first round pick for Alper and Shingun straight up. What are you saying? Where's that pick? Well, they're a fringe playoff team. So not in the lottery. No, no, just straight up. Yeah, no. Okay. So Shingun yeah. to you has, has exceeded his initial trade value to this point. I think so. I think he's, I think he's a talented player. I don't know what his ceiling is going to be. I don't, I don't ultimately know what his limitations are going to turn him into in terms of how you build around him or how you use him to build around others. But I think he's worth more than like the 15th pick in the draft or, you know, he was the 16th pick. Right. So right. I think he's worth more than that right now. I mean, the, the next draft will be deep, but I mean, this is a guy that's proven he can go out and give you a double double and a few assists at the very least. Um, he's already one of the best post-up players in the NBA now posting up is a dying art. And I understand that. Um, but I don't even think they've begun to tap into his full potential to the extent that I would trade him for what you, what you, where you took him. Will they tap into that full potential with this five out Steven Silas led offensive system that we have? If they continue to go five out, I don't think they'll tap into his potential. I think the best way to tap into his potential is to post him up, force doubles, kick the ball out to shooters, get it moving. And then also to get him in the high post and run action around him and use, you know, use those screens, use alternate bodies to create space and use his passing ability over the top. Do you think they will do that? Uh, I'm not optimistic yet. They got to prove that to me, right? Right. So far they're using him as a post-up guy off the bench. So that's part of the, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think they fully tapped into what he can do from the high post. And I don't think that they fully tapped into his passing because when you're, when you're posting up, your angles are kind of cut off, right? You can, I would, is this audio only or do you do video as well? I do some video stuff, sure. Because So look, let's say this is the three-point line. Sorry for anyone who's listening on audio, but let's right. say this is the three-point line. Here's the basket down here, right? Three-point line, basket. If you post Shangun up right here, and let's say you, you got KPJ up here, Jabari here, Shangun here. KPJ gives the ball to Jabari, Jabari, and then, then you got Eric Gordon, Jalen Green. You can get the ball to Jabari, to Shangun. His angles to pass over here to, to 
Gordon on the elbow and Green in the corner, those are cut off, right? But you can still force a, a double team for, or a collapse from two good catch-and-shoot shooters in Jabari and Jalen and then force the ball out to get it moving. But these angles are cut off, so they're only using him in the post. So he, his passing is a little limited. If you use him in the high post and you run action around it, now he can spray from any angle, right? So right. Will they do it? We'll see. They haven't done it yet enough. They've done it at times, but not enough. You know, what's interesting is when DJ Augustine was on the team last season, DJ Augustine seemed to really have like that chemistry with Shingun. You know, he'd give him the ball and cut and Shingun would find him right. and vice versa. So you just need someone who knows that, who can read that. That Luther so. head knows for the game. <laughs> kind of, kind of. Um, uh, yeah, you know, watching the last couple of games, I couldn't help but think, like I brought up Mike D'Antoni. I saw you tweeted out uh, Rick Adelman's name, which I thought was a great pull for that high post, that sort of offensive read and react sort of stuff that is so mm. much fun to watch. And I do not find our offense fun to watch right now. Like I'm really having to scrape for, you know, watching Jabari Smith's development, watching Jalen Green's development, watching uh, KPJ learning how to find people, not finding people, et cetera. If we were to move on from Steven Silas, is there a coach or is there a type of coach that's out there right now that you would you would want the team to target? Man, I don't stay in touch with like the the coaching pipeline, the the talent that's in the coaching pipeline. I feel like every year there's a new assistant who did something, you know, at a G League level or at the end of at the end of the bench for the Raptors or you know whatever. Right. <clears throat> Just a situation I'm not plugged in enough to to really know. So I don't have a name. I would give you something basic, like a basic answer, like a Quinn Snyder. That's you know that's yeah. a proven commodity. Would he come for a rebuild over here? I doubt it. But um, but I would just like to see movement, man. I mean, look for example, the, the Spurs, right? The Spurs are a young team. The Spurs don't really have high-end talent, certainly not drafted at the level that the Rockets had. And the Spurs assist on 70 to 71% of their field goals made. So that tells me that the ball's moving. That tells me that bodies are moving. Right now, the Rockets assist on 50 to 50.5% of their field goals made. And that tells me the ball's not skipping. And that matches the eye test that we're, that we're watching. The ball's not skipping. Bodies aren't moving. It's just isolation play. So how do you, to answer your question of what kind of coach I'd like, I'd like to see a coach that can... A, adjust to different personnel instead of trying to fit the personnel into the one thing they want to do, which is right. heliocentric isolation basketball at the moment. Right. And then two, a coach that really puts a value and emphasis on moving off the ball. Like, I don't expect these kids to execute at a high level, but I'd like to see them try. You know, I'd like to see them try to run around or set, you know, a pin down or an off ball screen or like with this same design right here that I was talking about. Let's go mm -hmm. back to this. Shangun mm -hmm. in the post, KPJ up top, Jabari on this elbow. Eric Gordon on this elbow, Jalen Green in the corner. You get the ball to KPJ, you swing it to Jabari, you're about to post up Shinguna. Before you send that pass, you run a double screen, Eric Gordon, KPJ, and you spring Jalen open. KPJ peels off this, right? So now you have options and movement. Jalen come to get the ball, defense is moving, KPJ peels to the basket, people are moving, and you're going to force Shingun's defender to do something. Or you post Shangun up as this is happening, and now all of a sudden it's a pass to Shangun and he hits KPJ peeling. Or it's a pass to Shangun, Jalen comes off this and then crashes. And it's, a, you know, like something where people are moving off the ball and creating op opportunities, right? Because if you're just isolating, that's the hardest shot to get. We saw that with the old Rockets, right? I don't know if you remember, a lot of people used to, used to say, oh, I hate watching James Harden. I hate 
watching the Rockets play. Right. And we were all like, hey, man, this is awesome. We're kicking ass. <laughs> but it, but but that that was the case because they were good at it. Right. What we're seeing right. now is that offense, but we're not good at it. And right. it, it truly is hard to watch. So, um, yeah, I would like a coach that just understands and values off-ball movement because that's how you can overcome a lack of talent. It's how you can overcome a lack of maturity if you just force the defense to move. Right now we're standing still. Defenses aren't moving. And Jalen can bail us out every now and then. KPJ can bail us out every now and then. Sometimes Al P gets a one-on-one post-up, and that's a bucket. But it's not a reliable, fun, smart offense. So With you. And that was my takeaway uh, from the, the first Jazz game. I'm watching that game, and even though we did win that game, it was like, man, everything is so damn hard. To, it's, it's like you watch Jalen Green, how fast he is, and some of those – when he just blows by guys straight to the hoop and you're like, man, he makes it look so easy, but the offense makes it look so difficult. Why can't you pair someone with those skills with a system that sort of makes it easier for him? And then I hear you on a space, a Twitter space, I want to say maybe yesterday. Um, and that was one of your first points is everything. There's, there's no easy looks that this offense is producing. And those young guys, man, I, how many possessions do we need to see Eric Gordon launching a three from five feet behind the, We've seen that. We saw that. I don't want to see that. Respect all respect to Eric Gordon, but I I would really just, I I never want to see it again. (laughs) What does that accomplish, right? Uh, Other than maybe like marginally improving his trade value, if he can hit some of those shots, it does nothing for development. It does nothing for chemistry. It does not. I don't. I don't get it. Why are we? Why is Eric Gordon shooting so much? And and to back to back this up, so it's only it's small sample size, only five games, but. Last year's offense finished around 108 points per 100 possessions. That's offensive rating. An offensive rating measures how many points you score per 100 possessions. The Rockets were 26 last season, 108 per. This season through five games so far, they're 106 points per possessions, points per 100 possessions. So they're two two points worse Mm -hmm. per 100 possessions. They're still 26th in the season. So no growth ranking-wise. And uh, a, a statistical dip, if you if you compare last season to this season, clearly I understand it's a very tiny sample size, but it's basically the eye test kind of slowly game by game matching up what what matching up to the data that we're seeing, right? So yeah, I, I've probably said this a million times, so I apologize if I sound like a broken record, but easy buckets, dude. Good teams get easy buckets. Great teams get easy buckets and they have reliable options for hard buckets. And that's why they're so difficult to beat. The Rockets do neither of those things. Every action that's generated is behind the three-point line. No one is catching the ball, crashing to the basket. We we put that, we put Jalen and Kevin and Eric in positions where they can get a downhill bucket, but it's all generated behind the three-point line. It's like two stagger screens, and then you get the dribble handoff to Jalen Green, and then he's going downhill. But he never catches it like back to this, dude. You got guys out here. Put put Jalen, you know, in this corner or over here. Give him a screen and let him curl around and catch it at the free throw line. Simple. Rise and shoot. Right. Catch and go without having to go three levels from the three-point line. Catch and then triple threat. And then defenses on their heels. Options, you know. Um, Jabari Smith in college would, would nail the mid-range shot. Um, I haven't seen the ball once to him in the elbow just so he can face up from a little bit closer than the three-point line. And use his height. Go go give a screen to him, switch a defender onto him that's six six or six seven, and go give him the ball and let him just rise up over them and shoot. Simple. Doesn't mean it's gonna go in, doesn't mean it's gonna perfectly work, but I haven't even seen the attempt. And that is my issue. I couldn't agree more. I am mindful of your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. It means a lot to me. It really does. I will close with one last question, and that is just gonna be your 
well, first of all, please plug anything again that you have that you want to throw out there. And also World Series prediction. Oof. So that, that's the last question, World Series prediction? That's it, man. Okay. Well, hey, thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it. Whenever you get this put up, tag me and I'll, I'll retweet it for you. Um, thanks, man. So Roosh Williams, R-O-O-S-H Williams, Twitter, uh, YouTube, State of the Rockets, easiest way to find my stuff. We also do this thing called Rockets Watch. Check that out. Just tweet at me. Um, usually I respond. Sometimes I sometimes I just don't see it because that's the nature of Twitter. But usually sure. I try to respond. World Series predictions. I, I got to be honest with you, man. I'm terrified. Um, I'm just that way. I'm like, I'm just, I'm just always pessimistic because Houston sports has conditioned us to like expect the worst at of the course. worst times, you know. And I, I cannot shake the weirdness of facing another underdog team from the NL East in the right. World Series. So I don't feel comfortable at all. Now, 2019 was a bit of a fluke. They lost those first two games at home. They won the next three, somehow lost those last two at home. But they were facing Scherzer and Strasburg. And those guys are like A-plus, right? Nola and Wheeler, I wouldn't say are A-plus. Um, and I don't know them like that. I'm, I'm not a baseball expert. So right. I'm... I'm using some of my own knowledge and I'm also using some of the knowledge that I've heard other people say, and that makes sense to me. So don't want to take full credit for my opinions on this, but um, Nola and Wheeler are more like a minus B plus a, you know, they're, they're not that level. And then their bullpen is shaky. Um, also a point that someone else made, can't remember who, but I thought this was interesting. The 2019 Astros were the most talented by far but they were front runners in some ways, right? They like, even in the, even in the postseason, they went to five in the ALDS against Tampa. They, they came to Houston for game one of the ALCS and lost, I think seven zero. And then they won game two with Correa's walk-off at the end, walk-off home run. Um, and then they kind of picked up, I mean, even, even Altuve's walk-off, they were up. What was it? Three, two, four, two. I can't remember. And they blew it. I think LeMahieu hit like a two run bomb or something in the ninth. They almost blew it if Altuve didn't walk that thing off, could have been disaster. Could have, could have gone to seven and who knows what happens then. Um, and then of course they lose the first two in the world series. They win the next three, which showed some major balls. Right. And then they lost the last two. These Astros seem to be just a little different. Um, and Granky also wasn't like, you know, he pitched well in game seven. He wasn't the same Granky. So I think one through four, these Astros, starting rotation, starting pitcher, I think these Astros are a little stronger right. and scarier. Um, but I thought that was interesting. These Astros kind of have that, like, no fear come back. Like, if you put them down, they will come back, right? We saw it in game one of the ALDS against Seattle with Jordan's walk-off. We saw it against uh, in the in game four, the closeout game against the Yankees. They went down 3-0 or whatever and came right back and went down again and came right back, you know? Um, and then also in 2021, I want to point out, I, I, I just think the Braves were a better team. I think maybe in the moment we – didn't have sight of that. But if you really look at it, I mean, that pitch, once Lance went down, that pitching staff got destroyed outside right. of Framber's gem in Boston. I think it was game five when he pitched like eight innings on the road um, to basically, you know, send it back to Houston 3-2. Outside of that performance, they got smashed. They got slapped around. And, you know, the number two in that series, the number two on that staff after Lance was Luis Garcia. And Luis Garcia is not even in this rotation. So, you know, there's, there's something to that. I think by the time they got to the world series, they were just gassed. And I think you saw it and, and Atlanta had Charlie Morton who only pitched part of game one, but then they had Max Freed who was lights out. And then they had um, Ian Anderson, their bullpen mentor, Will Smith, when he was in form. So like, 
I just think they were a better team. When I look at this World Series, I look at the Phillies. I've been trying to do a lot of research on it because I don't watch the Phillies, right? So I've been trying to understand their team. Seems like their lineup is kind of similar to the Yankees. In some ways, kind of similar to the Astros. Could be a wash. I think the Astros are better, but you never know what version of Altuve you're going to get. You never know if Jordan's going to be in a slump until the last game of the series like he was in the ALCS. You never know. Right. So all things considered, I'd call that a wash. Starting pitching, I think you could you could call the games one and two a wash. Wheeler, Framber, JV, Nola. After that, I think it's Houston's advantage. Houston also has the advantage in the bullpen. And then um, I think what's not being talked out, talked about enough that could really, if all else is equal, what's not being talked about enough is Philly's defense is, is not good. Uh, Kyle Schwarber is not a good left fielder. Nick Castellanos is not a good right fielder. I think he's like negative 0.2 war for the season or something. Um, they just have question marks defensively. I think they were like the 25th best or worst defense, something like that. Just not good, um, which you don't usually see at this level. For reference, I think the Mariners were 12th. I think the Yankees were first, believe it or not. And, and you saw without Hicks and without DJ, DJ LeMahieu, they made a couple mistakes. Harrison Bader dropping that that pop-up. Right. Um, Kiner Falefa, instead of turning the double play, screwing that whole thing up, and the Astros took advantage. So it's the kind of thing where if you're a team that gives free outs to the Astros, they will burn you. Um, now, we'll see what happens. The Phillies have been hot. I'm hoping this four-day layoff kind of screws them over and takes some of that juice away. They're very heavy on Bryce Harper. Kyle Schwarber has also, you know, basically their guys have been going boom or bust with no, like the, their averages and their OPS hasn't, I don't know about their OPS, but their averages haven't been all that good. Like uh, Reese Hoskins, I think is batting like 182 in the postseason, but five of the hits he has are home runs. So it's right. like, so I think it's kind of that. And if you can avoid Bryce Harper killing you, I, I'm starting to feel comfortable and less scared, but Verlander struggles in the world series scare me. Their, their top two pitchers are very good, so that scares me. So I say all that to say, I'm scared. Um, I will go Astros in seven. Um, seven, okay. Seven. I I just think, I just think it'll be hard to avoid one of those. It's it, it'll be a weird series, you know. Some shit's gonna happen, or the Astros won't capitalize, and then it'll turn around, and you know, it'll turn into a a Bryce Harper big play, just something, right? Where. They can't go 11 and 0, right? So I, I just feel like Philly's got something special to it. Um, it'll be a tough series. I hope the Astros, I, I think the Astros are objectively better, but I just hope they play like it this time. So, yeah, that is one thing that strikes me. My prediction is Astros and six. And it, it, the Nate, the momentum, how big a factor momentum is in playoff baseball. It's not like basketball, right? Where the, the better team tends to win a seven game series. Right. You get weird shit in baseball where, <laughs> All of a sudden, you can't hit the ball, or Verlander gets in his head, or whatever happens. So, to me, the pitching, like you, you noted, is the big difference. The Astros are significantly better. And if their pitching holds up and does what it's capable of doing, I think the Astros win. And I think they win, like I said, in five, uh, I'll say six. I think but, they got to uh, win game one. They've never won game one of the World Series. I think if they win game one, it positions them very well. If they lose, then, I, then I'm going to be very worried. But look, Got to keep it real. That that Yankee series could have gone differently without the wind. I know the wind was a joke, right. was a meme, right? But I mean, it 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 took away a couple Aaron run Aaron Judge home runs in key moments. That goes both ways. Mancini had a ball that kind of died that probably would have been a home run. Jeremy Pena had one that kind of died that probably would have gone yard. So it right. evens out a little bit. Um, the the Yankees were able to 
score some of their runs in the first inning of game four because of the win, like for example, Glaber Torres had that pop up that just dropped and it scored a couple runs. So it goes both ways. Um, but let's, I mean, we got to keep it real. Like that series could have looked different if that win didn't, didn't, you know, give us the slightest bit of luck. Um, and then also, I think it was at the end of game two, which, whichever one we won three to two, I think, or no, no, four to two. I think I can't remember one of the games, the final out was, I think it was right before judge came up. It was either right before judge came up or it was right before Stan came up something, a big moment. It went, it was a line drive straight. It hit the base before Altuve caught it. It hit the base. And when that happens, obviously the ball can skip any which way. It just happened to skip right into his glove. Like whatever luck happened, the trajectory of that ball, once it hit second base, it just went straight up. It didn't go like ping or ping. And had that happened, it would have been a runner on base. And like, you know, I think, I think Presley's pitch count was up at that point or something. It just would have been like a much hairier scenario. I think it's very underlooked. It's part of the game. So it is what it is. But if you're parsing through those little things, I remember in real time watching that ball hit the base and just holding my breath like, Oh, and then he got, you know, and it was over, but it's just one of those things where it's like, yes, we beat the shit out of them. But if you go through and find these little things, you you know, I'm a pessimist. So I just look for those things, but either way, we'll see what the Phillies do. Hopefully it's not one of those series. Hopefully the best team in this case, the Astros wins. And hopefully they really just lose some of that momentum with this four day layoff. Cause remember they went straight. They were the last team to clinch. They went straight into the wild card, the postseason against the Cardinals and they didn't skip a beat. They've just been running off this high off this adrenaline. Right. And hopefully with that coming down a little bit, they kind of regress back to, you know, the 87 win team that they ended up being. So. We'll Thank see. you so much, my friend. Thank you for hey, coming. Daniel, I appreciate it. Like I said, tag me, I'll retweet it for you. Just, just give me a heads up before you do, or, you know, Shoot, shoot me a message so I like I, it's on my radar. Um, and yeah, I appreciate it, man. Best of luck with the pod. Thanks, man. Take care. You too, dude. Okay, this is not Tom.